This is the Policy Options Podcast. I'm your host, Maddie Haslam. In Laval, about 30 kilometers from where I am in downtown Montreal, there's a building that closely resembles a prison. It holds up to 150 people, but the men, women, and children inside haven't committed any crimes. It's a holding center for migrants, a part of Canada's immigration detention system. The immigration detention system isn't actually a part of the justice system, but my guest today says it's creating a shadow penal system in Canada. Dr. Stephanie J. Silverman is the outgoing Bora Alaskan National Fellow in Human Rights Research and teaches Ethics, Society and Law at Trinity College, University of Toronto. She's also a partner at Thinking Forward, a human rights consultancy, and the Canada Country Advisor for the International Detention Coalition. Her research primarily examines immigration detention and alternatives to detention programs, as well as the criminalization, securitization, illegalization, and ethical justifications of immigration control. Stephanie, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So to start off, what are the reasons that people are detained in Canada's immigration detention system? Uh, immigration detention may occur if a Canada Border Services Agency or CBSA officer um, suspects or is unsure about the identity of a presenting non-citizen or if the officer reasonably believes the non-citizen to be inadmissible to Canada and are either a danger to the public or thought likely to abscond, which means to go underground. These are all codified in the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act. And the big question is this idea of inadmissibility, which means someone does not have the right to enter and reside in Canada. And the main reasons under IRPA that are listed for inadmissibility are criminality, health-related reasons, and non-compliance with the IRPA. And no finding of inadmissibility needs to be confirmed before the arrest of the non-citizen by the CBSA officer. It is important to note that immigration detention is warrantless. There is no reading of one's rights. There is no automatic access to legal counsel or even a telephone. And there are usually no meetings to explain how to apply for release from detention in Canada. So just to clarify, people who are detained haven't committed any sort of criminal act. That's right. So immigration detention is an administrative part of law. It resembles the criminal justice side, but it's actually under the administrative side because that's where immigration itself is placed. So people are not technically imprisoned, but detention resembles prison. So the reason why they are being held is purely under the IRPA, which is administrative, which is immigration law. So they are not criminals, even though their detention has been normalized to seem warranted, it is judicially warrantless. It is a fiat towards deportation. So there can be front end or back end detention, Canada, it is mostly back-end detention, which means CBSA is looking to deport somebody. 
And then once someone is detained, how long can they be held for? There is no time limit on immigration detention in Canada under the IRPA. Um, I've done extensive research into uh, this indefinite detention situation in Canada, in the United States, and in the United Kingdom, because it doesn't have to be that way. Many countries in Europe observe a time limit, but in Canada, there isn't one. And so that means that people um, can be detained for as low as 48 hours, and CBSA claims that about Three quarters of detainees are released within 48 hours of arrest. And they also claim that 90 to 95% of asylum applicants are not detained, but are just arrested and then released into the community. But we have cases in Canada of detention stretching for months and years. So the longest serving detainee right now is Ibrahim Touré. He's been in detention for at least five and a half years. Wow. Um, and just to get an idea of scale here, how many people are affected by this system in Canada at the moment? How many people are detained right now or maybe would be throughout a, the course of a year? So because detention is indefinite and because statistics are not offered in the same way and because there is no watchdog or monitoring board like there is for the prisons, we're not really sure. CBSA, the Canada Border Services Agency, statistically records that they detained an average of 7,215 individuals between 2012 and 2017 each year. In 2012, the CBSA carried out close to 19,000 deportations and denied entry to about 51,000 individuals. So those are people who were inadmissible and were either detained for a short period and then deported or just turned around at the border and not allowed entry. In fiscal year 2016-2017, CBSA reports detaining 6,251 individuals for a total of 131,617 what they call, quote, detention days, with an average of 19.5 days spent incarcerated. Again, there is no legal time limit. And so when we look closer at these statistics, we see that 439 people were detained for over 90 days during the 2016-2017 fiscal year. I should also add that we have a problem with statistically recording children in detention in Canada because children who are detained with their parents are often not recorded as detainees per se. They're recorded as the guests of their detained parents. And that is because children are supposed to never be in detention. They are incarcerated in what the CBSA calls the Immigration Holding Center in Toronto. But there they are separated from their fathers who are incarcerated inside the men's unit while the children stay with their mothers. And between 2010 and 2014, we think that there is an average of over 242 children per year detained in Canada. And you also asked me about how many people are impacted by detention. So those are just the people who we know who are inside the detention centers. And it's both in the immigration holding centers, which are in the MTV cities, Montreal, Toronto, and Vancouver, but then the federal government, which is in charge of immigration, subcontracts about one third of their detainees to provincial correctional centers. 
so with my new research project with Petra Molnar, we are very interested in the communities and networks of the formally detained people. So these people are not captured by the statistics, but they are also harmed greatly, especially by the indefinite or unknowingly long incarceration of their loved ones. So this could include the stigma of visitations, the brutality of family separation, the loss of income and housing, the travel time that is needed to get to detention, and so on. Mm, So this is having a, a broader community and familial impact. That's right. And we're only starting to understand that. So this is what our our new research is looking at. We're looking at how detention has ripple effects that impact the socio-legal order of society. So it's not only the mostly male, mostly racialized population who are formally incarcerated, although we could talk more about the conditions that they face, but rather we're interested in mostly the women and the children who are in relationships with those men. So this could be their mothers, their sisters, their partners, their daughters, their sons, their neighbors, their uh, fellow church members, and so on. We're interested in what it means to have detention intrude into your lives. And we take this from a social determinants of health perspective. And also we're taking cues from the Black Lives Matter movement, where we're trying to understand police violence as not only impacting the people who are directly violated by the police, but all the people around them as well. And what does it mean to live in a community where you could become detainable or where someone you know is in detention? How is that physically, psychologically, emotionally, et cetera, impacting the larger, mostly racialized, mostly newcomer communities in Canada? Right. And this project is ongoing, but could you speak a little bit more to what you're finding so far? So... We are applying a gender and a racial lens to the experience of detention. We are finding that the Canadian immigration detention system exhibits vast regional disparities. So this is building on previous research where Ontario hosts over half of immigration detainees in Canada. And there's also an extreme gender balance. So this is about 76% of the formerly incarcerated population are men. Um, so we're interested in the psychosocial effects of the stigma of visiting someone and then real life practices that the families and the loved ones have to go through. So what we're hoping to uh, document are things that people in the refugee and advocacy community have informally known and been seeking to combat for a long time. So one thing that most people don't know is that the CBSA operates an anonymous tips line where if you know somebody who you suspect is in Canada without full status, you can phone this telephone line that the Harper government set up and let the government know about this person without telling them your own name. So we suspect and we would like to investigate further how abusers and traffickers are making use of the tips line to control women. That's just one aspect of the ripple effects of detention. Another one is that the CBSA officers are not trauma-informed. So a lot of women have had very negative, if not abusive, if not violent, experiences with government officials in other countries. 
So this means that seemingly innocuous practices like asking women to step into a side room or to hand over their purses for inspection can cause a lot of trauma to the community. So this means that women who have to commute long distances to check in to stay out of detention might skip those meetings to avoid that trauma, therefore becoming detainable and under threat of absconsion. They may skip going to detention to meet their partners because they can't um, cope with the securitized atmosphere, which is not only in the prisons, but also in the immigration holding centers. We think that it's a problem that there isn't any duty council in the immigration holding centers. So duty counsel is when there is an on-site lawyer to provide legal advice. So as I mentioned, there are no readings of rights. There's no access to uh, translation. There's no um, clear way to get out of detention other than these monthly reviews, which the government offers to detainees, but which scholars are showing become increasingly futile since you need to present new evidence and how are you supposed to gather new evidence from inside detention. So we think that things like adding a time limit onto detention to do away with this unknowingness of indefinite detention, we think adding duty counsel, we think simply turning off that tips line (laughs) would mean a world of difference to women and that ultimately by allowing these harmful practices to continue, the state could be seen as facilitating gender-based violence. Hmm. Could you explain, just earlier you mentioned uh, the monthly review process. I was wondering if you could explain how that works just a little bit more. Of course. So immigration detainees in Canada have very few legal rights. As I mentioned, there are no statutory time limits. There are no rights to counsel or translation. And this is because detention is technically an administrative procedure rather than a criminal one. And so there is minimal judicial oversight. Instead, what detainees are offered are reviews of their detention. So after initial detention, after 48 hours, after one week, and then every month until the detention is, quote, resolved, then they are offered a monthly review before an administrative an administrative tribunal decision maker, not a judge, not someone in the criminal system, rather an administrative procedure. But In immigration detention, the onus is flipped from the criminal system. So in the criminal system, the state is constantly having to show why a prisoner needs to remain in prison. That's what happens at bail hearings. The state needs to make the case that the prisoner cannot be released. However, in in immigration detention, the onus is flipped onto the immigrant. So this means that The immigrant needs to prove that if he, because again, 76% are men, if he is released, he will not abscond. So this is a very strange thing to prove. (laughs) You need to prove from within prison that if you are released from prison, you will turn up for your next hearing. And this could be done through uh, securing someone to post a, a financial bond for you. But there is no guidance on who can be a bonds person or what we call a surety or not. So this means that whether someone is an appropriate surety remains at the behest of the judicial decision, of the tribunal decision maker. 
So this is important, right? Because it means that um, that if I'm at my hearing and I've secured my aunt, who's a Canadian citizen, to post a bond for me, then either, and it is entirely within their remit, the decision maker will say that my aunt loves me too much that she will allow me to abscond, or my aunt loves me too much that she will ensure that I will come to my next bail hearing. So this decision-making is entirely outside the hands of the detainee, but the detainee needs to present new evidence or a new surety in order to gain release after being detained. That's very complicated. And like you mentioned earlier, you know, many of these detainees are perhaps refugees, perhaps coming from having already experienced like high amounts of trauma. Um, So I'd imagine that the difficulty of that process is only compounded by factors like that. That's right. And we have research from colleagues who show that each immigration detention hearing becomes increasingly useless. So there's some sort of tipping point at which point each review becomes less likely to lead to release. And this is also because of deportation. So like I said, immigration detainees are technically awaiting deportation, but actual removal from Canada is often not possible. And this may be for technical or immigration-related reasons, because each deportation is a two-way agreement between Canada and another state. So overlapping problems with affecting a deportation that include detainees is that the detainees may not have valid travel documents. So you cannot travel anywhere in the world without a travel document. And other countries do not need to accept your travel documents. Canada doesn't. If Canada thinks that a passport is fake, you become inadmissible. So Canada needs to arrange valid travel documents for every detainee awaiting deportation. That, and, but also, countries of origin refuse to issue travel documents. So Canada cannot issue a travel document to a non-citizen. The receiving country must do this. And statistics recently uncovered by journalists show that Jamaica is at the top of this list of countries of origin that are refusing to issue travel documents. There's also stateless populations, and this could mean legally stateless, like the Rohingya in Myanmar and now in Bangladesh, or de facto stateless, like Palestinians, for whom Israel does not issue travel documents. Some detainees hail from quote-unquote failed states or states where the principle of non-refoulement could be violated, like Somalia, non-refoulement being is a term of international human rights law, which means deportation to a place where they'd be facing torture or other grievous harm. Some detainees have pending humanitarian and compassionate applications. Some are unwell physically and not fit to fly. And then otherwise, some are just not able to gain admission into the receiving state in the short term. So what happens is that the decision maker at these review hearings says, oh, well, the reasons why the CBSA arrested and detained you remain in the same. And just because your deportation hasn't happened yet, it doesn't mean it won't happen at some point in the next month. So therefore, you should remain in prison or in the immigration holding center. 
So Michael Mabogo is well known. He had a minor drugs conviction and his disputed identity resulted in his maximum security prison incarceration for almost a decade. And I should also add that this is financially expensive, right? So we're talking over $200 per day per detainee. And what's the, I want to touch on this prison issue a little bit more. What is the validation for, for housing detainees in prisons? Yes. So we have been pushing for a transfer policy in Canada. So we do not know at what point a detainee gets transferred to a provincial correctional center and then how to get them back because the prisons are much further away from the city than the immigration holding centers are. So the Vancouver Immigration Holding Center can only detain someone for less than 72 hours. So they must transfer out, and they often transfer to Burnaby. But in Toronto and Montreal, there's 195 beds and then 150 beds in Montreal. But that means that about a third of people must move because there simply aren't spaces for them. So detainees may be transferred uh, when they are thought to have violent tendencies or are mentally ill or disabled. And this is because the psychiatric health provisions are thought to be better in the prisons than in the immigration holding center. So again, this means that if you are feeling suicidal or self-harming because you are being indefinitely incarcerated in the immigration holding center, you will be transferred for your own good to the prison. And our research indicates that detainees council is rarely notified of transfer decisions or the reasons for the transfers. And then detainees do not have the right or meaningful opportunity to challenge this decision. And importantly, it is the CBSA officer, not a doctor or a lawyer who decides on the site of detention. And also <laughs> one more reason why, they, why people wind up in prison is because migrants may be detained under IRPA powers. Again, that's the administrative immigration law. So they may be detained under IRPA powers immediately following the completion of a criminal sentence, sometimes without changing locations of imprisonment. Would you be able to provide an example of someone who has lived through this process and explain about what that has meant for them? So Ibrahim Touré, as I mentioned, is Canada's currently longest-serving detainee. Mr. Touré has not been charged or convicted of any criminal offense, and he is not considered a danger to the public. The CBSA is detaining him because they believe that he will not show up for his eventual deportation if it can be arranged at some point in the future. So he spent four and a half years incarcerated in the maximum security jail in Lindsay, Ontario, which is about a three-hour drive outside of Toronto. I should also add that he did have a lawyer, and legal aid certificates in Ontario don't include driving time, and it's very difficult to arrange a phone call with someone incarcerated in the Lindsay, Ontario security jail. So communication, legal counsel, all of this becomes very difficult at this location. He had his October 2017 Superior Court ruling that the conditions of his detention were, quote, grossly disproportionate to the purpose of ensuring his deportation and amounted to cruel and unusual treatment. This judge then ordered his transfer to the Toronto Immigration Holding Center, which is considered to be less restrictive. The Superior Court 
judge also said the government maintained the right to incarcerate Mr. Torre because there was a reasonable prospect he could be deported within a quote, reasonable time frame. Although I believe that was now six months ago from the time that we're talking now that this court ruling was handed down. And Mr. Torre is still incarcerated in the Toronto Immigration Holding Centre. So this is what we mean by the shadow penal system, that these incarcerations over identity, old drugs convictions, or in the case of Mr. Torre, and no conviction, but the simple suspicion that someone is inadmissible to Canada, that all of this reduces and flattens the core right to be free from arbitrary detention. And it makes deportation into a collateral civil penalty for immigration infractions. This is a symptom of what scholars call the criminalization of migration, where states seek to attach criminal and civil penalties together. So it's something that resembles and looks like the criminal justice system, but without the due process and other rights protections that people involved in the criminal justice system are entitled to, including the right to a lawyer and the right to translation. Right. And you mentioned earlier that detention has become a pretty normalized practice within Canadian immigration control. Yes. So this was very surprising. So I've been studying immigration detention for about a decade. And when I started off, Canada was informally seen as sort of a best practice detention system. It was very minimal. It took place for short periods of time. The immigration holding centers were not always full, this sort of thing, especially when compared to Europe or Australia, which operates an offshore detention system. And of course, compared to the United States system, which is always the elephant in the room when it comes to penalizing and punishing immigrants and incarcerating them in a carceral shadow system. And also when I started off, people were very concerned about the rights of security certificate detainees. And they were kind of not so focused on these immigrants and asylum seekers who were being, I would still say arbitrarily detained for unknown periods of time. But now it's because of the criminalization of migration and the securitization of migration, and probably because of pressures from other states to, quote, get tough on immigrants, uh, this system has become more and more seen as just an everyday practice of policing migrants. And also, detention is out of sight and out of mind for most people. So those who do not know about it don't really care about it. And if they do care about it, it's because they assume that the state is incarcerating people because they deserve to be incarcerated Because if these migrants shouldn't be in prison, why would the state be spending all this time and energy and money on incarcerating them? So there's something like a tautology that develops that allows for the criminalization of migration and then that flattens all the rights of detainees and from people into just migrants. And so this sort of um, shadow system, this everydayness that makes it somehow acceptable to to operate a shadow penal system with no time limits is something that I'm trying to unsettle in my research and that I'm trying to show has ripple effects out from the actual detention system through my work with Petra Molnar and our community partners as well. Mm-hmm. 
And then in 2016, the federal government, it did commit to reforming the immigration detention system. What did those promises look like and what kind of progress has been made on those promises? Um, so this was a seemed like a, a big step forward. <laughs> um, we were finally speaking about detention in the public sphere, uh, which was great, um, that it was being acknowledged as a problem. And the federal government developed the National Immigration Detention Framework, which was to be a plan to modernize and sort of bring into compliance the immigration detention system. So from our perspective as researchers, we welcome this because there's a chance to talk about detention, to reaffirm that legally immigration detention is a last resort, and to try to reduce detention overall. And I should say too that there's been an ongoing activist community call for public consultation for the end of detention, that Canada became a partner in the UNHCR global detention strategy, and also that a number of detainees died within a short period of time. And this seemed to spur increased media coverage and this understanding that not everyone in detention deserved, quote, deserved to be there, breaking that tautology that I mentioned earlier. So in particular, the National Immigration Detention Framework is a, a promise to devote $138 million over five years to address four flagstone issues, including developing alternatives to detention, which are non-custodial community-based monitoring programs. And I believe the intention was to create, quote, a better, fairer system that supports a humane and dignified treatment of individuals while protecting public safety. So I'm not sure how this is working out. <laughs> um, I understand that instead of reducing detention capacity, that the CBSA is renovating the Vancouver Immigration Holding Center so that it can detain people for longer than 72 hours. So this could be a good thing. It could mean, depending how you see it, it could mean that um, that detainees won't be transferred to the prison in Burnaby anymore, but that they'll stay near the airport. But we don't know what this detention center will look like. Uh, there have been some suicides there. So there have been coroner's reports. But again, everything is behind a veil right now. So we're not sure what it means. My interest is in the alternatives to detention. I'm somewhat wary about the plans that have been released so far because they have include electronic monitoring or tagging. And this would be a pilot to release people like Ibrahim Touré into the community, but they would have to wear an ankle bracelet that would electronically monitor them and send signals back 24 hours a day to a centrally located site. Tagging is been described as living under a suspended sentence. It comes to us from the preventive and criminal justice settings, and it would be a new development for Canada. And in my work with the International Detention Coalition, we are very adamant and clear that alternatives must not be derived from the criminal justice setting. And so we're surprised by this introduction of tagging. Yeah, it sounds more, more like expansion than reform. 
And it's because, again, detention is reliant on deportation. So if the government is convinced that people will not comply and turn up for their court hearings without being detained, but they can also not arrange their deportation with the states of origin, then the state finds itself between a rock and a hard place. Mm -hmm. I think that the turn to tagging is the wrong way. I think that there are better and more welcoming alternatives that we can put in place and that these alternatives have better outcomes for settlement and integration. And yes, they even lead to voluntary deportation who, for people who have exhausted their appeals to stay in Canada. And this includes people who have ongoing humanitarian and compassionate applications, which I mentioned earlier as a complication for deportation. Also, I think what we have to keep in mind is that for many decades, again, until quite recently, Canada simply released would-be detainees on their own recognizance and to little or no fanfare from the public. So this normalization of detention is the problem. We have to go back to rethinking about, about what it is, what sort of social contract we're entering into when someone presents themselves at the border. And do we want to prioritize alternatives over release? Do we want to prioritize tagging as an alternative? And if we do, then we are thinking that the problem lies with migrants and non-citizens. And so I think that the problem is actually detention and how detention creates ideas around deservingness and that, that these ideas are often racialized and gendered and that we lose sight of release and other less coercive, damaging and stigmatizing possibilities. And then we need to rethink how we manage migrants. Hmm. Could you expand a little bit more on, on potential alternatives to detention? Definitely. So I should say that the best alternative is release. <laughs> that for many, again, for many years, detention was not part of the Canadian migration plan. Uh, that migrants who make it all the way to Canada, they have to either cross an ocean <laughs> or they have to cross the United States. For people who can make it to Canada, especially asylum seekers, so you need to claim asylum within the state's borders, people who make it all the way here have a very, very strong interest in complying. They don't want to live underground. My research shows that living underground is very difficult. It is uh, financially penurious. There are a lot of policies that um, force people to disconnect from their family and friends. And so no one wants this. If they had a choice between living in the open or living underground, people would much rather comply. But you need to do this through trust building. So you need to say, welcome to Canada. Here is when your court date is. Here is a refugee shelter that you can live in. So in, here in Toronto, we have a number of refugee shelters who are willing to act as a form of alternative to immigration detention. At these shelters, there are highly trained staff who can capitalize on what, I'm, what I see as the key ingredients to ensuring a healthy relationship with newcomers, which is mutual trust, service, and accountability, and to help newcomers through their court procedures so that they feel that they've been given a fair shake. And if you feel that you have been given a fair shake, but you still re receive a deportation order, then you're able to plan for your return and you're able to comply in a much better way that doesn't necessitate detaining escorts. So sometimes CBSA must handcuff people and bring them all the way back to their own countries. Sometimes CBSA pays 
other missionaries and other deportation actors to carry out their deportations, for example, to Somalia, because Canadian government officials cannot go there. And this is all because there is no mutual sense of care and trust and accountability. So alternatives that take this into account when they're being developed are much better in terms of outcomes. And what could that look like in practice? So at the International Detention Coalition, we have developed uh, what we call the Community Assessment Placement Model or the CAP model. And this is seen as sort of a best case uh, social work-based model for alternatives, especially involving vulnerable people. And this involves a social worker who follows each person in a case management style. And then there is a firewall between the social worker and the lawyer. But again, everybody has a lawyer, something that's not guaranteed in detention. And then the government is also involved, but there's another firewall between the government and the social worker and the lawyer. In which case, if the immigrant or the newcomer is having difficulty making ends meet and is considering absconding, she or he can build on the mutually trusting relationship with the social worker to talk through solutions without worrying that this person will report back to the government. So these sorts of ways of building trust, removing stigma, living in the community, and building lives together is a much better, healthier form of welcome that Canada seeks to develop, at least in its rhetoric. To the point of, of Canada's rhetoric, many Canadian cities, including Toronto and Montreal, we've seen them declare themselves sanctuary cities. Uh, this current government is very vocal about our acceptance of refugees and asylum seekers. How does Canada's immigration detention system, as it currently stands, sort of reconcile itself with this notion of it being welcoming to newcomers? Um, I don't think it can be, but I think that it is misconstrued again, along these criminalization of migration lines, where it's seen that some people are deserving of asylum and some people are not. And those people who must be removed won't comply, so they ought to be detained. This tautology is very powerful around criminalization and deservingness, especially when you look inside the detention system and you see, for sure, a few children, a few women, but mostly able-bodied, single, racialized men. And then that this population is not always lobbied for as strongly as, as the refugees are. Some colleagues of mine think that it goes even further. Some think that the detention system sustains the asylum system, that it allows the population, like the public, to see that the asylum system is working in that the people who don't pass the Geneva Convention protocols, that those people are removed from Canada. So this was a big deal during the Harper government around, um, you may recall, bogus refugees being a term that was thrown around then, this idea of fraud, um, of using Canada's welcoming nature against itself. All of these things are kind of built into the justification for detention. But I think that when you open the door to detention and you look at it and you think about um, all the costs to not just the detainees, but the people in their communities, as well as like other ripple effects and financial burdens, uh, we see that they cannot be reconciled and that detention should be turned away from 
and reformed as robustly as possible. I think we'll leave it there. Stephanie, thank you so, so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. That was Dr. Stephanie J. Silverman. If you'd like to read more about Canada's justice system and how it interacts with social programs, you should check out our ongoing feature series at Policy Options. It's called Widening the Lens on Criminal Justice Reform. If you'd like to send us your feedback or comments, you can tweet us at IRPP or reach me directly at Maddie Haslam. You can also send us an email at policyoptions at IRPP.org. Our podcast is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please feel free to subscribe. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.